Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. This is the second part of a three-part series on the United Film Distribution Company and Taurus Entertainment. If you have not done so, please make sure you listen to episode 58, the first part of this series, because there will be a quiz at the end of the show. No, not really, but I will occasionally be referencing things I already talked about on that episode, and I don't want anyone to get lost, like right now. When we left off, UFDC had sold off the North American distribution rights for George A. Romero's Creep Show to Warner Brothers Pictures, making a nice profit on the film before it was ever played in a single theater. Creep Show was the third partnership between Romero and UFDC, but it would not be the final time they'd work together. We'll get there soon enough. For now, we begin this part of the UFDC story in late 1982, just after the successful release of Creep Show into theaters with a movie that UFDC helped to finance in 1981, but decided not to release at the end of 1982. On paper, Peter Winograd's flicks read like a great replay of the Kentucky Fried movie. It was a parody of the Saturday afternoon cartoons and serialized adventures of the 1930s and 1940s, and would feature recognizable actors including Pamela Sue Martin from Dynasty, Martin Mull, and recent Academy Award nominee Joan Hackett, for whom this would be her final film performance before passing away of ovarian cancer in 1983. But films aren't made on paper, and the final product would be so odious to UFDC that they'd place it on the proverbial shelf for nearly four years until Media Home Entertainment offered to take it off their hands. Media would put the film out on VHS in January 1987, where it would find a small but devoted cult following. UFDC's first release of 1983 would quickly become a cult favorite, Enzo Castorelli's 1990 The Bronx Warriors. Like many a low-budget 1980 movie, 1990 The Bronx Warriors takes place in a post-apocalyptic world. This time, a ruthless psychopathic mercenary is hired by the family of an arms manufacturing corporation to infiltrate the now lawless enclave of the Bronx to return one of their family members who has run away to that deadly and vicious burrow. The idea for the film came to producer Fabrizio de Angelis when his unfamiliarity with the New York City subway system led him to miss his intended stop in Manhattan and end up in the Bronx. As the movie was an Italian production and Italian regulations required that at least 50% of any Italian production be filmed in Italy, all the exteriors were shot on location in the Bronx, while all interiors were shot in Rome. The mostly Italian cast was supplemented by three American actors. Christopher Connolly, the one-time star of the hit television soap Peyton Place, football great turned blaxploitation legend Fred the Hammer Williamson, and Vic Morrow in his final completed film before the unfortunate accident on the set of The Twilight Zone that took his life. Although the film was shot in 1981, the filmmakers didn't have the chance to get Morrow into a recording studio to redub his lines before his murder in July 1982, so they would need to hire someone else to do that work. When the film opened in 108 theaters in the New York City metropolitan area on April 22, 1983, the vast majority of those theaters were not United Artists theaters. And like many a UFDC movie, 1990 The Bronx Warriors would work its way around the country, market by market, 
until it made its final stop at 52 theaters in the Los Angeles metropolitan area on July 8th. And while the film wasn't all that successful at the box office in America, it would gross more than three times its budget in Italy alone, prompting the making of a sequel, Escape from the Bronx. That film, however, would not be released by UFDC. Instead, its American distribution would be handled by New Line Cinema in 1985. It would be another seven months before UFDC would release another movie, and then they would release two movies in successive weeks. The first would be considered an outlier for the company. The Jigsaw Man was a British spy drama directed by Terence Young, director of three of the first four Bond movies, Dr. No, From Russia with Love, and Thunderball, and starring two of the biggest names in British cinema, Michael Caine and Sir Laurence Olivier, as well as Susan George and Charles Gray, the one-time Bond villain from Diamonds Are Forever, who is now best known as the criminologist in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. The Jigsaw Man was inspired by the story of Kim Philby, a British intelligence officer who defected to the Soviet Union in 1963 after years of secretly working for the KGB. Kane plays Philip Kimberly, a former head of the British Secret Service, who defects to Russia, is given plastic surgery, and then is sent back to Britain by the KGB to retrieve some vital documents. But once he's back in England, Kimberly escapes his Soviet handlers and sets out for business on his own, leading both MI6 and the KGB on a hunt for him and the documents. It's a role Kane can and has played in his sleep, and both he and Olivier are rather good in the film, despite not putting really that much effort into it. But filming would hit a snag in 1982 when the production ran out of money. When he didn't receive his regular payment during production, Olivier simply walked off the set after a take. Kane would soon follow due to lack of a paycheck. Both actors would soon return, once the producers were able to line up another $4 million in financing from Pakistani businessman and filmmaker Mahmoud Sipra. By the time the film opened in theaters on November 11th, it would be facing off some stiff competition, including the Sam Peckinpah thriller The Osterman Weekend, the hit Michael Caine film Educating Rita, and Sean Connery's return to the role that made him famous, James Bond, in Never Say Never Again. The Jigsaw Man would make a quick exit from American theaters. The following week, November 18th, would bring yet another controversial movie to the big screen. Dear Mom and Dad, I've been at a sleepaway camp for almost three weeks, and I'm getting very scared. Welcome to sleepaway camp. Someone is watching you. Hey, Baba, revolve! Someone is waiting for you. Someone wants to scare you to death. Sleepaway camp. You won't be coming home. Richard Hiltzik's Sleepaway Camp was one of a thousand low-budget independently produced horror films that were able to find financing in the wake of the success of low-budget independently 
financed horror films like the Halloween series and the Friday the 13th series. But unlike, say, Humongous or Pieces, Sleepaway Camp dared to be a little different. Shot in five weeks in Great Neck, New York, at the former Camp Algonquin, where the director attended summer camp in his youth, the $350,000 film would be picked up for release by UFDC after a successful seller screening and set the film up for release, starting with 85 theaters in the New York City metro region. And like many an independent horror film from an independent distributor in the early 1980s, costs were kept low by using the same prints over and over again in different regions across America. Sleepaway Camp would wind its way through the southern states in the late winter of 1983 and early 1984, then up through the Midwest, and finally make it to Los Angeles on May 25, 1984, opening in 43 theaters. According to some Sleepaway Camp fan sites, the movie was a far bigger success when it opened in New York City than the highly touted directorial debut of Barbara Streisand, Yentl, which was indeed the case. However, it should also be noted that Yentl was only playing in 10 theaters that week. A movie playing in 85 theaters should outgross a movie only playing in 10. But by the time Sleepaway Camp was done moving from town to town more than a year later, including a return to a number of smaller cities in the fall of 1984, thanks to strong word of mouth about that ending, it would have sold more than $11 million worth of movie tickets. It would be another year and a half before United Film Distribution would release another movie. But for some film fans, especially those of a certain franchise, the wait would be worth it. First, he created the most frightening film ever made. Then, he took his unique vision of terror one step further. Now, George A. Romero takes us out of the night, beyond the dawn, and into the darkest day of horror the world has ever known. Day of the Dead. George A. Romero's Day of the Dead. The most eagerly awaited day in horror film history. After Creepshow, George A. Romero still had one movie left, due, on his deal with UFDC, and he would mull over several ideas, including a UFO horror comedy called Invasion of the Spaghetti Monsters, an unnamed 3D movie which would have used a twin 70mm camera system owned by United Film Distribution that was supposed to be the best 3D system at the time, and an adaptation of Thomas Block's novel Mayday, which could be pitched in high concept as zombies on a plane. But Romero would eventually set to work on the third and expected final chapter of his Dead series. Ever ambitious, Romero went all in on writing the screenplay. The world has become overrun with zombies, outnumbering the still-live humans by a ratio of 400,000 to 1. Many of the still-live humans are living in an underground facility in the Florida Everglades, where a group of scientists tenuously coexist with a group of military personnel assigned to protect them. Some of the scientists are looking for a real solution to the problem, while the lead scientist is trying to find ways to make the reanimated dead docile through training and conditioning. 
Romero's first draft of the screenplay ran 200 pages in length, as he wanted to make the Gone with the Wind of zombie movies. But knowing the movie would likely need to be released without a rating, Romero and UFDC worked together to get the script down to a more manageable 88 pages and the budget from more than $7 million to just above $3.5 million. Day of the Dead would be one of the few Romero movies to have a sizable portion of the production take place outside his usual home base of Pittsburgh. The choice of South Florida for a portion of its shooting was based on Romero's living in the area when he was writing the movie. Once he returned to Pittsburgh, the team put out a call for extras to play zombies in a group scene within an abandoned mine being used as a set. Extras would get a dollar a day, a hat, and bragging rights to say they were zombies in a George A. Romero movie. And even members of the band NRBQ would hop in their van after a gig in Boston on a Friday night and drive all night watching a VHS tape of Dawn of the Dead in order to be on set the following morning outside Pittsburgh just for that opportunity. The movie would have its world premiere on June 30, 1985, not in New York City or Los Angeles where most premieres are held, or even Pittsburgh or Fort Myers, Florida where the movie was shot, but in the town of Hicksville, Long Island, about 30 miles east of New York City, near the headquarters of UFDC. The film would open on 75 screens in New York City on July 3rd, but by its third week it would be in less than 10 theaters, replaced mostly by the nearly forgotten The Legend of Billie Jean and another re-release of E.T. the Extraterrestrial. And like many of the movies we've discussed on these episodes, the movie would travel from market to market, heading down the East Coast and across the country heading west, until it landed in Los Angeles on October 4th in 53 locations. But maybe it was because it was mostly released during the summer. Maybe it was because it was mostly released during the summer. Or maybe it was because it was released in a summer that also had Rambo and A View to a Kill and The Goonies and Cocoon and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome and Back to the Future and successful re-releases of E.T. and Ghostbusters, as well as a plethora of horror films like Life Force and The Stuff and Fright Night, and another semi-sequel to The Night of the Living Dead that used to shy away from the summer months, but Day of the Dead would only end up grossing about $5.8 million in its American theatrical run. The film would find great success in in the remainder of the world, where it would gross an additional $28.2 million. The film would also become a mainstay on home video, placing 23rd on the Billboard Top VHS sales chart for all of 1986. Their next film, Flanagan, was an odd little pickup for UFDC, a comedic drama about an aging New York City cabbie, played by the great Philip Bosco, who was determined to become an actor on Broadway despite all the roadblocks, pun fully intended, life puts in his way. It would have a great supporting cast, including Geraldine Page, who would win an Oscar for The Trip to Bountiful a few months later, Olympia Dukakis, who would win an Oscar two years later for Moonlight, William Hickey, who would be nominated for an Oscar a few months later for his work on Pritzi's Honor, Stephen Weber, and James Tolkien, who had appeared as Mr. Strickland in Back to the Future earlier in the summer. The movie would open in the, at the UA Gemini Twin in Manhattan on Wednesday, October 30th, and two days later at the Coronet Theater in Westwood 
and the Beverly Center in Beverly Hills. But after that, it would disappear from theaters. And now, if you want to see Flanagan, you'll have to look for it under a different title, Walls of Glass. Shortly after the release of Flanagan, the Coca-Cola Corporation began to discuss acquiring the United Artists Theater chain to complement their main entertainment holding, Columbia Pictures. The talks would go on for months, and when I became a manager at United Artists Theaters in July 1986, things were already well underway to make the transition to the new ownership as easy as possible, including silly things like needing to get rid of all the Dr. Pepper soda syrup because we would be selling Mr. Pibb from then on, making the Coca-Cola logo more prominent on the popcorn tubs and soda cups. And at the corporate offices, it meant shutting down UFDC, as Coca-Cola already had two distribution companies, Columbia Pictures and TriStar Pictures, the latter which they owned in partnership with the HBO cable channel and the CBS television network. But as it turned out, United Artists Theaters was also talking to John Malone, the owner of the largest cable company at the time, Telecommunications Incorporated, about merging their cable operations, at the same time UA was talking to Coca-Cola about combining forces. Malone decided to make a major offer to UA in late July 1986, and not just for the 750,000 United Artists Communications cable subscribers, the 12th largest cable TV operation in America at the time, but for 51% of the whole company. Coca-Cola offered $450 million for the whole of United Artists. Malone offered $500 million for only 51% of the company. The Nafee brothers took Malone's offer. United Artists would spend the rest of the year moving their corporate offices from the New York City area to the TCI corporate offices outside Denver. But they would reopen the UFDC offices in Great Neck, Long Island, and they would rush to prep the release of a movie they originally planned for earlier in 1986, Chuck Bale's Choke Canyon. Stephen Collins stars as David Lowell, a self-professed cowboy scientist who is trying to develop a new kind of clean, alternative energy source. Lowell has leased some land in southern Utah, from a corporation, believing he can use the sound waves emitted from Halley's Comet as it passes the Earth to create his new energy. But the CEO of the corporation decides he wants to use the remote patch of land to dump his company's nuclear waste and arranges for Lowell to be removed from the land and to destroy the scientist's lab. Lowell is assisted by the daughter of the CEO out to get him, and he's also helped by a hitman who is sympathetic to the scientist's cause. The film stars Nicholas Pryor as the evil CEO, Janet Julian as the CEO's daughter, Bo Svensson as the hitman, and Lance Heinrichsen as the man hired to sabotage Lowell's research. UFDC was hoping to capitalize on the global excitement for the return of Halley's Comet, but since the movie wouldn't get released until it arrived in 49 theaters in New York City on August 1st, nearly six months after the comet had come and gone, the film would not see a whole lot of ticket sales. But you have to give UFDC some credit for trying. Like many of the movies we've discussed on this episode, the company kept moving the prints around from market to market until making it to 43 theaters in Los Angeles on October 17th. The film would get some nice blurby quotes about its stunts from the likes of Jeffrey Lyons, Judith Christ, 
and D.J.R. Bruckner of the New York Times. United Film Distribution would release two films in 1987, neither to any kind of success. The first, Guy Magar's Retribution, would feature Dennis Lipscomb as an artist who survives a suicide attempt on Halloween night, only to discover he has been possessed by the soul of a gangster, murdered at the same time he threw himself off the roof of a hotel, and the spirit is looking to seek vengeance against those who killed him. Also featuring Suzanne Snyder from Weird Science and actor-musician Hoyt Axton, Retribution would begin five weeks of filming in January of 1986, and Magar would have a three-hour rough cut of his film ready by June, in the hopes of getting it trimmed down to 90 minutes or so in order to make it into theaters for Halloween. But Magar wasn't able to get the film into any kind of release shape by then, and he'd finally finished the film in early 1987. UFDC would release the film into theaters in Texas, Oklahoma, and upstate New York, but without any kind of advertising or publicity, and director Magar was not happy about how the film was handled. He sought out a new distributor for the film, and in 1988, he would find one, in Taurus Entertainment. But we're not quite there yet. The second UFDC film of 1987 was Nico Mastrakis's crime comedy Double Exposure. Mark Hennessy and Scott King star as two wannabe photographers who inadvertently photograph a murder while taking some snapshots on a beach. Once they develop the photos and figure out its connection to the crime, they decide to become detectives themselves, following their only clue, a beautiful blonde with a rose tattoo on her left buttocks. July 1985 Playboy Playmate Hope Marie Carlton also stars as the possible murderess, and the film also features the great John Vernon, best known as Dean Wormer from Animal House, Ted Lang, best known as the bartender Isaac from The Love Boat, and Joe Estevez, best known as the uncle to Emilio Estevez. About the only thing of note for the film for anybody today is that it represents the first solo film score from Hans Zimmer. The film would get a very small regional release in September 1987 and can only be found now under the title Terminal Exposure, which ironically was similar to another UFDC movie they were supposed to release, John Kincaid's Terminal Entry, featuring Yafet Kodo which would go direct-to-video under the Taurus Entertainment label in June 1988. But we're still not quite there yet, as we have to make a stop at December 7th, 1987. This is the date that United Artists Theatres retired the UFDC name and incorporated a new business corporation in the state of Delaware, Taurus Entertainment Company. United Artists Theatres had decided to merge UFDC with a small Los Angeles-based distribution company called Artist Entertainment Group, operated by Robert Doodleson, a former sales manager for New Line Cinema, and Stanley Doodleson, a former president of distribution for New Line Cinema. Taurus Entertainment would act independently of United Artist Theaters, but would still operate from the UFDC offices in Great Neck, Long Island. And we'll get into that in our third and final episode of our miniseries, on UFDC and Taurus Entertainment. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. 
Good night. Good night.